0: Greetings. I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFizz podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 294, and today's guest is Don Dodge, investor, entrepreneur, and tech executive. If you've listened to this podcast in the past, you probably know that I'm an avid fan of tech history. There's nothing like a legendary founding story of a company that completely disrupted an industry. Well, I have an amazing episode today that is going to cover a lot of ground at several groundbreaking platform shift companies. I'm talking about the legendary stories of companies or products like AltaVista, Napster, Groove Networks, and the early days of tech pillars like TechCrunch, Y Combinator, and more. Okay, here are just a few tidbits that you'll learn from our conversation. Did you know that AltaVista tried to hire the founders of Google while they were still at Stanford? Did you know that Napster was actually trying to build a legit platform with a business model that would have allowed the music labels to welcome in and embrace the digital era? Did you know that Y Combinator held their very first demo day in Cambridge, Massachusetts? And can you guess what company demoed that day and is now a top 20 web property? Well, you're going to have to listen to the full episode to hear the details of these stories and get the answers. But now that I think about it, Don and I go way back. Not only am I thankful for his time to share these great stories, but I am also really, really thankful for all of his support. When I started VentureFizz, I used to syndicate content from influencers and investors in the tech industry, and Don was one of our partners. Don was a prolific blogger, and it definitely helped us build up our credibility. His blog was called The Next Big Thing, and if you want to take another great trip down memory lane, please check out his blog as it is still published. In this episode of our podcast, we also cover many other topics like Don's thoughts on AI, which was something he was blogging about years and years ago and what he's up to these days. Okay, quick side note. This week's episode is sponsored by MarketMuse, a content intelligence platform that sets the standard for content quality. Their AI-powered software enables companies to create predictably better content at scale that increases traffic and engagement, cuts down your content process, and improves your search visibility. Get more out of your content with packages starting at $0 a month that is free. Plus, you can get 20% off the MarketMuse standard plan, which includes a chat GPT integration by using our code VFIZ20 that's V F I Z Z 20 at checkout. Go to marketmuse.com to get started. All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Don. Don, thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Hey, great to see you again. Don, it's been a
0: long, long time since we've caught up. So I was super excited to do this podcast interview, but we do go way, way back. I want to say if I had to guess we probably met each other around 2009ish would probably be about the time frame. I don't remember uh, maybe exactly.
1: Earlier.
0: Maybe even earlier 2008 probably. Um, yep. yeah, cuz I started VentureFizz in 2009 and I was just starting to kind of get out there and I was doing my headhunting thing. Um and you were one of the great people that helped me get started because you were um you know very kind to let me republish and syndicate a lot of your blog content. So uh, I am very grateful for that. Um, And you were an early blogger, right? So I was going through your blog that you were writing. Uh, It was called the next big thing. It was very active. I mean, comments for every post. I mean, it was just super, super helpful back in the day. And when I was looking at it and I was having so much fun going through the archives, um, you were making these predictions and you were talking about AI and AI is everywhere right now. It's it's the the platform shift. Um, but you were talking about it in your blog in 2016. So way ahead of the curve of where we are today. So I thought that'd be a good starting point of um, you know, what are your general thoughts around AI and its, you know, use cases around businesses or whatever the case may be, consumers, whatever. Uh, and then if you had to make those bold predictions like you used to do, because when I looked at those bold predictions, they were actually pretty on target so you you have this uh crystal ball outlook so i'll stop talking and let you let you take it from here
1: yeah those predictions look obvious now but at the time it was before any of these things happened so looking at them 15 or 20 years later it looks like oh sure of course uh but it was not clear not clear then that these things would actually happen so i started talking about platform shifts um in the sort of computing world. And there were several platform shifts that happened from mainframes to workstations, to PCs, to mobile and all these things. So I I had already written a lot about platform shifts and then projecting into the future, it was, okay, machine learning, artificial intelligence, where are things going? And today uh, we're here in 2023, artificial intelligence is all the rage. Uh, But it actually started happening much earlier. Uh, You have to go back to machine learning uh, was really the first instantiation. So AI is a superset of uh, all of this, uh, or machine learning is a subset. So if you look at machine learning, uh, that means learning what is known and bringing things together quickly, uh, faster than a human could, uh, to make decisions. AI is taking what is known and making inferences and creating something new. So it's a superset of AI, uh, of ML. So if you looked at the first kinds of uh, machine learning, it was natural language processing. Remember that? Being able Mm -hmm. to go from text to speech or even understanding text uh, written, applying natural language processing engines to texts or blog posts or anything that was written. And then it got to go to -to text-to-speech, which was an amazing thing. Uh, Then it was sort of face recognition, voice recognition. So these are all early uh, implementations of machine learning, which eventually got to AI. So face recognition and even doing it in video, you might remember the uh, being from Boston, the uh, Boston bomber, that hit the, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, well, that was just the the marathon that was discovered. The guy who, two people who did that were discovered from video processing, face recognition. And that was a long time ago, but it was phenomenal at the time, it was incredible that they were able to find these guys. You later saw machine learning in robotics and uh, self-driving cars, for example. So these are all implementations of machine learning that were much, much earlier. I remember when I um, started at Google in 2009, they had self-driving cars on the campus in 2009. And it was like the Jetsons. It was like unbelievable to see these self-driving cars running around with cameras all over them, all over. They had like 20 cameras on this car, Uh, but that was there in 2009. And self-driving cars were not actually legal until 2013. Uh, that's 10 years ago. Right. Uh, so, you know, you've seen a lot of this machine learning uh, over the past 20 years and AI over the past five years, but really, really strong now with the launch of ChatGPT Uh so there's we're very, very early. There's a lot yet to be done, but it is AI is the future of computing.
0: So you're uh, making investments in this category. So what's, what what are you excited about?
1: Well, um, whenever I look at any of these platform shifts from 40 years ago to today, my mantra is it's the old thing done a new way. So AI is going to be applied to existing business practices and processes to make them better and faster. So AI is the new thing and the business processes are the old thing. So it's the old thing done a new way. So you're going to have to look at first principles in uh, businesses and life and say, okay, how could AI be applied to these things to make it better? Uh, so let me go back to uh, self-driving cars. So self-driving cars are still a long way away from uh, being every ubiquitous and everybody using them. But you see it in the cars that you have today with collision avoidance and these things the mirrors telling you when there's someone in the lane beside you, uh, those sorts of things. So uh, I think AI is going to roll out in the same way. It's not gonna be totally autonomous artificial intelligence. It's going to be artificial intelligence augmenting the things that we already do. And in fact, that's the first investment I made was a company called Augment AI. I love the name and it happened to be, the founder is Jordan Ritter, who was one of the three founders of Napster. Mm -hmm. So I worked with him 23 years ago, 24 years ago at Napster. And he went on to found several other companies, CloudMark was one, but he has a new company called Augment AI. And as the name implies, it augment, It uses AI to augment existing applications. So it does two things. One is it personalizes the AI. So you've heard of large language models. That's the sort of technology behind AI. So these large language models are basically generic. It's taking text and uh, blog posts and videos that have been posted on the internet uh, publicly and just analyzing every single one of them to build a large language model that allows them to create an artificial intelligence. So if you took these large language models uh, that are generic and you made them personal to you, you would have your language model And now AI is not some generic thing, it's speaking as you. So it can reply to emails. It goes back and looks at all of your emails and says, oh, I I see how Keith responds to things. I see the language that he uses. I see the references that he makes. Uh, So it would take your email and respond as Keith, not as a generic large language model. So I think it's just fascinating. So uh, two things that I think Augment AI did, it took the large language models and made them your language, personalized. And the second thing it did is augment existing applications. So unlike ChatGPT, where you have to cut, copy, and paste something out of one document, load it into ChatGPT, get a response, take that response and copy it, and then put it back into the the email as an example or text. Augment just is a plug-in all of these apps and it's there. So you just mm-hmm. invoke it within the application that you're in and the AI automatically responds to an email or a text message or uh, a document. It will create a new document, create a summary of it. So uh, that's a long talk, but that's what I'm really excited about.
0: Yeah. And you hear the the use case for that and it's just like, it makes you more efficient. I mean, it just like, there's so many benefits of that. Uh, type of use case. And I just see there's going to be an explosion of all these different use cases for businesses and enterprise. And of course, there's going to be consumers, but I think the business side is definitely going to be really, really fascinating to watch over the the next few years.
1: Right. So as I said, you're going to right now it's generic. uh, These large language models are generic and the AI answers in a generic way. Uh, But you're going to see very specific language models applied to healthcare and banking and insurance or whatever. So it's going to be AI applied very specifically to certain markets and businesses, and it will be uh, astounding really what they're able to do.
0: All right. Well, we have a lot to cover in terms of your background and there's so many great stories here. So let's go down, down the path. I'm, I'm a historian of technology and I just love conversations like this. Um, so, all right. So rewind the clock, you know, even like, where'd you grow up? Like, what were you like as a child?
1: I grew up in Hollis, Maine, which is a tiny little town in Maine. It's about uh, 20 minutes west of Portland. Uh, there were only 400 people in this town, uh, no stoplights, no restaurants, it's just a out in the peck brush. So when I was growing up, um, there were no role models. Uh, there wasn't any internet where I could learn about technology or anything. And an engineer was someone who, uh, an architect who created a building or someone who drove a train. There was no such thing as a software engineer or you know that kind of thing. Uh, so I grew up there and I started out in finance because I didn't know anything else. My father was an accountant. So I said, OK, fine, I'll do that. I'll be an accountant. Uh, so I started out in finance and I was bored within a year. Uh, I went to work at a CPA firm, and which was great because I got to do audits on companies and see every week I was in a new company and probably a new industry and just seeing how that company worked and uh, what made it profitable or unprofitable. So I learned a lot, uh, but I was bored as hell. So I um, went to the Boston Globe and I saw an ad for a company in Milford, New Hampshire called Data Products. And they did dot matrix printers. So this was my first introduction to technology back in 1982. So that was 40 years ago now, 41 years ago. Um, But I had to get into technology through the finance door. So I did financial analysis and accounting, and I found that I was spending most of my time, my free time, with the engineering people. Uh, and I I found out the engineering was much more interesting than the financial side of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so the VP of engineering uh, was a rock star engineer, but he hated doing the business stuff, uh, hiring and budgets and Uh, projections and schedules and delivery dates and all this stuff. So he said, Don, why don't you come work for me? And so I did all of that kind of stuff. So I was working in engineering, but not an engineer. And I did that for a few years, loved it. Uh, Then I went to digital equipment, Uh, digital equipment corp or DEC was the biggest computer company around at the time and like 300,000 employees And again, I had to go in through the finance door. So I was a financial analyst, but in an engineering company. And DEC had this um, model where they had engineering directors and technical directors. And the reason was that technical directors were incredibly brilliant technologists, but they hated doing all of the uh, engineering director kinds of things, being the staff meetings and the Planning and the budgets and the capital expenditures and blah, blah, blah. They hated doing that stuff. So I got to go pretty quickly from the engineering side, from the finance side to the engineering side, even though I wasn't an engineer. The other thing I learned was the engineering was changing so fast, technology was moving so fast that nobody really had a head start because even if you were an engineering kind of person, Uh, and came out of college with engineering, uh, the technology changed so fast that it was all new to everyone. So it was easier for me to catch up or even go ahead by just paying attention to this technology because no one really had an advantage as these platform shifts happened and technology shifts happened. So um, I worked like a madman and spent all my waking hours uh, learning and thinking about technology uh, so DEC was a great, great uh, company to work for. Um, and they got caught in one of those platform shifts. So uh, they took advantage of the mainframes because when we started mainframes back in the 60s, IBM was dominant and there just wasn't anything else. DEC and Sun and Data General, they were the workstation, mini computer companies. Wang is another one. So they came and kind of disrupted the mainframe uh technology with workstations or mini computers, as they call them. Uh, well, and that worked great. Uh, in the 80s, they were huge companies. Sun and Digital and Wang were super successful. Uh, but then they got caught in a platform shift of their own when things went to PCs. And they didn't make the shift. Uh, so the, the mainframe guys didn't make the shift to workstations and mini computers. But the workstation guys were unable to make the shift to PCs. And there was a lot of disruption that happened. And again, it was the old thing done a new way. Now, I'm here 41 years later having all this experience. If I had known that then, I would have, when the PC revolution started, I would have said, oh, well, obviously these PCs are going to need hard disks, uh, local storage, right? Mm -hmm. So why don't I start a hard disk company? Or obviously these PCs are going to be linked together in a network like mainframes are. So why don't I start a PC networking company like Novell? Uh, or obviously these PCs are going to need software to do things. So why don't I start a spreadsheet company like Dan Bricklin did, uh, Right, you know, BusyCalc. Uh, so after a while I started seeing, damn, every time there's a platform shift, The existing companies get uh, marginalized and go away and new companies emerge. But these new companies are doing the same thing. They're doing the old thing done a new way on a new platform. And every time there's a platform shift, not only do you need new software, you need new uh, testing tools, you need new development tools, you need new security stuff, because the old development tools and, and, uh, development environments and testing and security don't work on the new platform. So if I had known these lessons when I was younger, I would be a billionaire. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, it was great. It was great fun. Uh, so that was one of the, uh, early moves was uh, into technology at digital equipment. Uh, that led to, um, Alta Vista, right. And so this Alta is Vista.
0: like one of these platform shifts of you know, obviously search, right? And and your product management was kind of where you were spending most of your time, right? You did business development, different roles, but how did you get involved with Alta Vista? And you know, I, I mean, I it's a groundbreaking technology that we take for granted, right, of being able to search for text, but it was the image and video and music search that. Didn't it was like impossible to create until Alta Vista, right?
1: Right. So that's what Mike Group did at Alta Vista. Um, I was living on the East Coast at the time and working for Digital, and they were starting up this Alta Vista search thing. And Barry Rubinson, who is a superstar engineer uh, manager, uh, he said, "Hey Don, why don't you come help me do this?" Uh, you know, we're out here and we're, uh, we've are we got this AltaVista thing that's coming out of the research labs and we want to productize it, make it a separate company. Come on out and help me do this. So I did. I moved to Silicon Valley and AltaVista was taking the world by storm. Uh, it was, you know, at the same time, there was Lycos uh, founded by Bob Davis in Boston. There was Infoseek. There was Excite. Uh, there were a bunch of other, portals that kind of had a search or a uh, index, but they weren't really a search engine. They were more of a portal with news and email and all these, what they called sticky apps. And their whole model was create an audience so we can sell ads to them. Um, so AltaVista was just search, just text search, and they were the best in the world, or we were the best in the world taking the world by storm, growing incredibly fast, but digital didn't really know what to do with it uh, Mm -hmm. because it didn't fit in any of their business models or their divisions. And it was really, truth be known, AltaVista was started as a demonstration of the power of the alpha uh, 64-bit computing system. So they were looking for applications that would tax the 64-bit memory uh, because it's a technical detail, but it was 32-bit before that and 16-bit before that. So when you had 64-bit addressable memory, it was like, oh my God, this is giant. What do you do with this? Uh, So Louis Monnier came up with the great idea of why don't we index all the pages on the internet? Because that's big and uh, that takes a lot of memory and a lot of horsepower. So AltaVista came about basically as a demo uh, for the alpha computers and the alpha chips. Mm -hmm. And we were trying to figure out how do we make this a business? How do we uh, make it scale? Uh, So that was incredible. Now, you got to remember, AltaVista was one of the first five or six search engines, Mm -hmm. and we were the best by far. Uh, basically because we had this super powerful hardware and memory and everything to be able to do things that the others really couldn't, or they could, but it was just super expensive. Uh, So that was great. Uh, And we could only do text. That was the state of the art text. So I started a group to do what we called multimedia search at the time. So it was being able to search for images uh, by a name, like jaguars or cats or whatever and it seems laughable easy today but back then it didn't exist there was no way to do it so we created all of these models to try to identify uh, photos on a page to try to figure out what it was it was incredibly difficult to do and very crude at the time because we didn't have many methods Things weren't tagged the way they are now, or Mm -hmm. uh, websites were not as organized and structured then as they are now. So it made the job much more difficult then. So we invented this uh, multimedia search. Uh, Photos was the first thing, then videos, then music. And each of them had their own challenges on how to identify what it was we were looking at. And we had all kinds of tools to try to basically the early versions of face recognition and video recognition and that kind of stuff to be able to do search for photos, uh, videos, and music. Uh, So it was an amazing time. And we were innovating uh, like no one else had before. Uh, We also invented Babelfish, which was a uh, translator. So we could translate Uh, English to Swedish or whatever, all these.
0: uh, Wow, I didn't know that piece. Yeah, Battlefish.
1: AltaVista was the first one to have, uh, be able to take text and translate it into other text. So it was mind-blowing, the things we were doing at AltaVista. Um, Mm -hmm. But then that lasted for a couple of years, and then Google came along. And Google, by the way, was the 17th search engine to hit the market okay. 17th. So there's another whole discussion about first mover advantage and why fast followers can beat the first movers, but maybe we'll get Mm -hmm. into that later. But anyway, uh, Google came along uh, in late 2000, no, late 1999. Wow. (laughs) That's a long time ago. Um, And AltaVista suffered from being the first really great search engine, and then Compact and CMGI came in and said, no, 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 it's got to be a portal like Excite and Lycos and all these others, and that's the way to really build a big uh, audience and be able to sell ads and all this kind of stuff. Well, uh, that was a disaster Uh, because it took the focus away from search and put it on all these sticky apps and things. And then we were one of 10 major portals. Uh, Microsoft had one called MSN. Mm -hmm. There were so many of them. And And Yahoo
0: dominated. Yahoo was...
1: Yeah. Yeah. And Yahoo ultimately ended up owning AltaVista. It was sold uh, to Yahoo. So a lot of the AltaVista guys went to Yahoo and uh, made that a thing. But Google did several things that were amazing. And there's another lesson here. Um, Whereas AltaVista was built on this big 64-bit architecture, these giant computers and giant servers, uh, storage and all this stuff, Google went the opposite direction. And rather than have giant storage systems, they took off-the-shelf little hard disks and networked together thousands of them rather than have two or three big, huge uh, storage devices, they would have a thousand little uh, disk drives, hard drives. And that gave them a cost advantage and a speed advantage that no one had had before. Uh, so that was one thing they did. Another thing they did was uh, they invented uh, AdWords or the, uh, trying to think of the name, Bill Gross invented this thing uh, To do ad auctions. uh, And he was the first one to do it. And it was such an amazing idea to, uh, because you got to remember back in that day, the advertising was basically uh, just broadcast advertising. It wasn't targeted. Banner ads, right? Exactly. Banner Banner ads ads and these tower ads up, up the sides, left side or right side. It was bizarre. It was terrible. But that was the only model that anyone knew. So Bill Gross invented this uh, ad targeting kind of thing that was targeted on the words that you were typing into the search engine, and uh, GoTo.com. That was the name of his company, GoTo. Oh
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: so he invented that, and uh, but then Yahoo got it, and and then Google came along and said, oh. I know what to do with this. <laughs> and they basically created uh, click to pay Remember that? CTP. So they put together an ad system that you only paid for the ad if someone clicked on it, which was revolutionary at the time because all ads were paid upfront in advance and it didn't matter how many people clicked on it. Google said, no, we're going to use this uh, ad targeting thing to You only have to pay for the ad if someone clicks on it, and then you're going to bid for the keywords. So they'd have this little auction for keywords, and that revolutionized uh, the ad business, which was the funding for the search engine thing itself, because searches don't make any money. It's a cost. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's the way everything ran. Uh, But then Google figured out, oh, wait a minute, we can run an ad auction and charge higher prices for things like mortgage or uh, cars or things like that, rather than just banner ads. So it was an amazing uh, experience and uh, a little painful lesson uh, for the future about when you're doing these platform shifts or when technology comes along it's not just the technology it's the business model that you apply to it and that's a lesson that I learned and saw many times uh after that
0: yeah so next up is another great Legacy company Napster <laughs> so mm-hmm. how did you get connected with Napster and Sean Fanning and Sean Parker and
1: yeah um well I was in charge of multimedia search at Alta Vista So we started with photos and then videos and then music. So every time I went to a new thing like music, I would look around the internet and see who is doing music, who's doing music search. And there were four or five companies at the time, tiny, tiny little companies that you've never heard of. iMesh was one I remember. uh, There was another one called Swoosh or something like that. And there was Napster. And of the five, Napster was the newest and least well-known, but they happened to be four blocks down the street from Alta Vista in San Mateo. And it happened that uh, one of the HR people at Alta Alta Vista was a girlfriend to one of the founders of Napster. And she said, hey, you should meet these guys. So... Long story short, we were. T- I was trying to acquire Napster into Alta Vista. No way. <laughs> and go forward that way. And uh, huh, funny, same thing happened with Google, by the way. Larry and Sergey were in Stanford at the time that I was uh-huh. at Alta Vista. And I went to Stanford to talk to them in their dorm room to say, hey, you ought to come join us at Alta Vista. We're doing this really cool stuff. I like the technology you're doing. Why don't you come over and bring that back rub thing over to Alta Vista, and we can do really big things? Uh, of course, they were still students, and they said, "No, nah, we, we need to go stay in school, get our PhDs, and we're going to keep working on this thing." Okay, Aww. so that was a little <laughs> nugget in time that seemed like a, a normal thing, but later it was like, "Holy shit, I can't <laughs> believe what they did." So Aww. Napster was kind of the same. Napster was this tiny little company. There was only six people, not four people. And they were th- four blocks down the street. And I was trying to acquire them into Alta Vista. And uh, same thing, they said, no, we're just getting started. We don't know where this is going. We're going to try to see what we can do. So within a few months of not being able to acquire them, uh, I left Alta Vista and went to work at Napster. And all of my friends thought I was an idiot, like, you're insane. You're leaving Alta Vista to go right. to this tiny little thing no one's heard of? I said, yeah, but, you know, I think it can be something big. So uh, Napster was a rocket ride. It was the fastest growing application in the history of the Internet. Uh, it was in the middle of the music revolution, uh, and at that time, again, this is hard to imagine, but most people were on AOL, dial-up. And to be able to download a song or to be able to find someone who had a song and be able to download it was impossible. Uh, you had to go right. through all these uh, RC channels and all these other things to, to find music to download. And then they had to be well, on. So
0: just if my memory is correct, so like back then it would be like you just... You buy a CD, you'd rip it to your hard drive and import it to your MP3 player was kind of what you would do to have portable music at
1: that time. That's right. That's right. And the problems with that were that the the server or the computer that that song was on had to be online at the same time that you were trying to download it. Because most of these songs were on hard drives of uh, individual people. and they would be up and running sometimes and not up and running other times. So you thought you knew where this song was and you could download it from them. But if they weren't online, too bad, didn't work. And you were dealing with dial up uh, internet that was so slow that it could take 10, 15 minutes to download a single song. And if they, if the person you were downloading it from happened to close up their computer and go home too bad, you didn't get the, the music. So Napster figured out how to apply uh, basic chat functions. uh, Because chat functions, they knew who was online. Because you got to go back and remember AOL and that kind of thing. It built this index of people who were online and people that you knew. So you could go to them and do a peer-to-peer kind of chat session. So Sean Fanning said, hmm. Why couldn't we use the same kind of uh, server that knows when people are online and knows who your friends are and add to that the music that they have available? Then we could do a search to be able to find a, not only the song you want, but the server that is up and running and available and you could download. It. So it took pieces of it And
0: this is to, to give... Boston, it's credit. He was at Northeastern doing this. Like he's from like the Cape, right? So
1: yeah, he's from Hull, Massachusetts. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And he was at Northeastern. He dropped out of Northeastern after his first semester and just said, no, I'm going to work on this Napster thing uh, full time. So you're right. He did it in his dorm room at Northeastern when he was a freshman. And uh, that's where it started. Uh, then he hooked up with Sean Parker uh, on some uh, chat messaging boards. and Sean was very Sean Parker was very interested in what Sean Fanning was doing. Uh, but Fanning was the technical guy and he knew uh, how to put it all together and make it work. And then the third founder was Jordan Ritter. And they met the same way on a chat board. And Jordan was the sort of back end server security guy. So Jordan did the back end, uh, Sean Fanning did the front end, and Sean Parker was the sort of business guy that uh, figured out how to try to make this a business. So pretty amazing. And it ended up, they were four blocks down the street from Alta Vista and tried to acquire them, couldn't, and then left AltaVista to join Napster. And it was a rocket ride from there.
0: Such a rocket ride. And I think about the importance and significance of what was built and how that has basically changed technology in the world. I mean, that that peer-to-peer architecture basically spawns a whole platform shift in itself.
1: It did. Right, because... Uh, Most things were hub-and-spoke kind of client-server kinds of things uh, and required network connections and all that. Uh, Peer-to-peer was a whole new thing, and it didn't really exist in a big way before Napster. Uh, So my next job after Napster, uh, or one soon after, was Groove Networks, and they were doing a peer-to-peer collaboration environment where you could share documents and work on things together and uh that sort of thing but it was in a peer-to-peer way between people and laptops and things Uh, and now peer-to-peer is everywhere we don't even talk about it as peer-to-peer it's just sort of uh, a technology behind the scenes but that's the way it works so yeah napster was really groundbreaking in, in that case all right so
0: what was that rocket ride like because i mean that just you talk about you know we were talking about alta vista being you know one of the early search players now we're talking about someone that is disrupting an industry that didn't know that they had a challenge like an issue ahead but it became a massive issue ahead
1: right so alta vista was my first rocket ride um and then napster was the second one and these rocket rides there are no uh framework to follow. They're growing so fast and changing so fast uh, that you don't, we were buying servers every week because we just didn't anticipate that it would grow that fast. And trying to keep up with the uh, demand was incredible. Then it it was the fastest growing application ever on the internet. Uh, and then we got into legal trouble because the record labels uh, started discovering, hey, wait a minute, our sales are going down. What's going on here? And they didn't really know about Napster or file sharing and didn't really care until they did, until it hit their bottom line. Then they care a lot. Uh, so then they joined together and started suing Napster. And uh, that was incredibly difficult for us because on the one hand, we're working every day to try to keep up with demand and growing so fast, introducing new features and trying to keep up with the technology. And on the other hand, you had the legal guys trying to shut us down. And we were spending, at one point, we were spending $2 million a month on legal fees. And everything that we did had to be done through the lens of how this would be perceived by the lawyers. So it kind of held us back a bit. Uh, But it was just an incredible uh, time, exciting, stressful. Uh, I remember saying to Sean Fanning, he was only 19 at the time. I said, Sean, think about this. Uh, You're going to remember this for the rest of your life. You're changing the world. Uh, we're in the middle of this thing, and it looks like a tornado, but you're really changing the world. And uh, you're maybe too young to understand what's happening here, but it's it's unbelievable. Uh, and it was hard because we're all wrapped up in all of the issues that were going on at the time, technical challenges, legal challenges, business kinds of challenges. How do we make this a business? And when we're in the middle of all of that, it's hard to step back and look at what we were really doing. But it, it was phenomenal. Well, you had a
0: great blog post, you know, going back through your archives of uh, lessons learned from Napster, and because way you summarized—and correct me if I'm wrong—like Napster was actually trying to build a legitimate business to partner up with the labels and have a very happy revenue. Stream for everybody because right. even CDs, everyone had their share of the pie, and the artist was only getting, I think you said, like a dollar out of that $17 CD sale. So I, That's you, right. you know, you, you talk about Napsters trying to create, okay, well, this is going to go all digital. How do we make this fair for the artist, for the label, for Napster, whoever was involved? Uh, and just cutting out like the middle man of the Best Buys or the retailers, strawberries or whatever <laughs> CD stores were of the time. Um, but you talk about You know, you're, uh, you can't sell, solve a problem when they don't know that they have it or something like that. Like, however you articulate it, I thought was really interesting.
1: Yeah. So a little history on that. Uh, Once we, once I started, uh, we said, Hey, we have to think about how to make this business. So let's go to the record labels and we will be their online distribution for music. They, they still do their CDs and that sort of stuff. And this will be another revenue stream for uh, digital music. Well, uh, the record labels never heard of Napster, didn't know what it was, and were not interested. So they wouldn't return our calls. Uh, so we said, okay, well, we'll just keep working on it and make it bigger. And once we're bigger and have more users, then they'll know who we are and they'll listen to us. So we went from like, less than a million users to 35 or 40 million users in four months and said, okay, let's try to talk to the record labels again. And, you know, we'll go to them with this business. We want to make this a business that's fair to the record labels and more importantly, fair to the artists. Because the artists were really getting screwed by the labels. They, they made peanuts compared to what the labels made. So you had this strange uh, dichotomy where, The artists liked us. The artists thought, oh, wow, we could be able to get more money out of this, out of this new uh, digital distribution. So MC Hammer and uh, Nine Inch Nails and a whole bunch of individual artists that were really popular at the time came to us and said, hey, we're curious about this and how this works and how it could work for us. And then we had the record labels on the other side that when we first went to them didn't know who we were and wouldn't talk to us now they knew who we were and they wanted to kill us and we're saying no 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 don't kill us we want to help you build this business and build it into something big Uh, because your cd sales are going down but this digital distribution could be a whole new business model for you revenue stream and we'll provide all the technology and infrastructure and everything and we'll do it for you and we'll split the revenue well They didn't want to do that. Uh, And they, that was another lesson for me is don't try to solve a problem that they don't know they have, they're not interested in your solution. And uh, they would rather kill you than uh, work with you. And in the whole scheme of platform shifts, that same kind of thing emerges. When you're the startup and you're doing something new, the big guys, you go to them to try to partner with them, and they, no, nah, we don't know who you are, first of all, and we don't believe you. And then uh, you get big enough, so they say, oh, okay, I see what you're doing. But that's the low end, and it's uh, you know, the very low end of the market. It's not profitable. We're not interested. Go away. And then you get bigger and bigger and bigger and start chewing their market from the bottom. You come from the low end, and you start moving up market. Then they finally figure out, oh, shit. Uh, this thing really is going to be something big, and we ignored it for a long time. Uh, Now what do we do? And there's a struggle. Uh, Clayton Christensen wrote a book, uh, The Innovator's Dilemma. It's one of the greatest business books of all time. And this innovator's dilemma happens over and over and over again on these platform shifts. And Clayton Christensen's book talked about steel mills and going from these giant steel mills to the mini mills. And then he used another example of how these huge disk drive companies missed the PC disk drives because they were tiny little things and inexpensive and not profitable. And you see that happen over and over and over again, where the innovator's dilemma is these big companies uh, don't see the change coming. And by the time they do, it's too late. And even when they do see it coming, it doesn't fit their business model. It doesn't fit their profit model, the cost structure. So it just doesn't work. And that's why in every one of these platform shifts, you see the incumbent big players uh, fail to make a shift to the new platform. And it takes a long time to kill a giant. You know, They're still big companies and still profitable, but they miss the wave of the next platform shift and slowly die away and the new ones emerge. And it happens over and over and over again. It happened in, uh, for Alta Vista, it happened to DEC itself when it went from the mini computers to the PCs. Uh, and in the music part of it, for Napster, we wanted to be the iTunes before there was an iTunes. There was no iTunes. And I contend that iTunes couldn't exist without Napster first blazing the trail and 100%. punching these record labels in the nose and yep. basically decimating their business. So by the time Steve Jobs came along, they said, oh, okay, yeah, I see this. Oh, is Apple, we could and partner yeah, with like, Apple. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, that's what happened. It was a, yeah. a wild ride and, and incredible, learned a lot of lessons uh, and it's a great piece of history.
0: Yeah. And obviously paved the way for Spotify and
1: Right, uh, I don't know which Sean Parker of... was also involved in uh, with Spotify. So yeah, okay. it, it it was an uh, amazing ride. All
0: right, so from there, um, Bow Street. So that was uh, building out kind of
1: the infrastructure for the B two B
0: web with XML and right,
1: right web services were a new thing, and again, this was twenty years ago, twenty three years ago. So uh, it seems obvious now, but the concept of web services and having these little tiny application services that you could knit together into a complete application uh, was foreign. Uh, We still were trying to deal with going from all of these different, like IBM had its tech stack and DEC had its tech stack and Sun had a different tech stack And being able to have services that worked across platforms was kind of hard at the time. Uh, So it was an interesting idea, uh, but way too early. So that was my, uh, maybe the third time I learned that lesson about timing. Uh, You can have the best technology in the world, but if the market isn't ready for it, uh, then timing matters. And even though you had the great technology, you were too early, uh, the business models weren't ready And uh, it couldn't take off. So that's what happened to Bow Street. Uh, They did ultimately get acquired by IBM, but that was years later and for Peanuts. Uh, So they were just too early. Uh, So after that, I hooked up with Ray Ozzie at Groove Networks, which was a peer-to-peer collaboration environment. And uh, Ray Ozzy is brilliant, for those who don't know. Uh, He started out uh, working at Lotus and built Symphony which was the answer to Microsoft Office. So Lotus was trying to uh, put together a suite of uh, word processor and uh, uh, all the different Office apps to compete with Microsoft Office. So he did that. And then he did something called Iris, which became Lotus Notes. And Lotus Notes became really the driving force of lotus mm-hmm. so when he left uh, ibm bought lotus uh ray left he started groove networks and groove networks was really the second generation of lotus notes it was peer-to-peer collaboration file sharing document sharing collaborative work environment all this stuff and it was great it was definitely the better way to work But here came another lesson. Even though your technology is better, uh, if you're trying to change user behavior and change the way they work, oh boy, good luck. It's not as simple and obvious as you would think. You would think, oh, this is a much better way to work and it's more organized and it's more team oriented and much more productive, but no. People didn't want to leave their email. They didn't want to leave their spreadsheets. Mm -hmm. Uh, They had processes in place to do the work. And even though Groove was better, uh, changing that user behavior was incredibly difficult. And we ended up, uh, Brian Halligan was the VP of sales and he sat right next to me. Uh, Oh, man, I forgot about that fun
0: fact. Wow. Wow. So that was before Brian Alligan sat right
1: next to me. He was VP of sales. I was VP of product management. So I knew Brian way back uh, then. And of course, he went on to found HubSpot, which is one of the biggest Boston successes in history. Uh, But anyway, Brian was tremendous at selling this thing. And he would find the industries and companies that really needed secure collaboration and sold it to them. And uh, it ended up being shelfware uh, some of the time. So even though you convinced the top level people that this was the way to work and it was more productive and they were willing to pay a million dollars or more to get it, once it got into the company, it sat on the shelf because getting users to adopt it, even though it was free and better, no, they wanted to keep working the way they were working because it was... Comfortable and familiar with them and they didn't want to waste time learning the new thing. So there's a lot of lessons along the way about being too early and about trying to prop- solve a problem that people don't have and how business models work and trying to change user behavior. And the changing of user behavior really, uh, that lesson was really learned for me at uh, Groove Networks. Uh, it was tough. Now. Groove, again, ultimately got acquired by uh, Microsoft uh, because uh, Bill Gates wanted to uh, retire and step back. And he needed a software architect and visionary who was as good as he was. Mm -hmm. And there was only one person. It was Ray Ozzie. So Mm -hmm. Bill Gates came out to uh, Beverly, where uh, we were, and uh, met with, uh, Ray Ozzie and said, "Okay, we want to buy your company, but more importantly, I want you to take over as chief software architect of Microsoft, so I can stand back." So that's how that happened. And uh, but it was again for chump change. It wasn't nobody. None of the employees really made any money from stock options or anything. But uh, it was a a great time, and and that was my entree into Microsoft. But
0: did they utilize the technology at Microsoft for like SharePoint or something like that, or?
1: Yeah, they did, uh, but it never really caught on, never really got wide adoption or acceptance. Uh, They used pieces of the technology uh, in SharePoint and Office and other things. And basically, it was a big acqui-hire, a very expensive acqui-hire. They wanted Ray Ozzy. They wanted the Groove team to integrate some of the features of Groove into Office and SharePoint and other technologies, and they were willing to pay any price to be able to do that. So uh, that's what happened. And uh, relevant to today, uh, Microsoft is doing that again. They're investing $10 billion in chat GPT to bring the chat. Uh, they aren't even buying the company. That's just an investment to be right. able to use yeah. the technology. So anyway, it was a big aqua hire uh, It was great. Met a lot of great people who are still friends today and Uh, learned some lessons. And Ray Ozzie is one of the brilliant uh, market leaders uh, in the world. Great guy. All right. So fast forward, uh, you
0: end up, you know, in this unique role, I think, right, for Microsoft, where uh, more of a developer evangelist type of role. So what, what were the details on that?
1: Right. Yeah. So I joined Microsoft in 2004. And it was as a technology evangelist, and, which is kind of similar to the developer advocate at Google, but different in that the technology evangelist was more business-oriented at Microsoft and the developer advocate at Google was more technology and developer-focused. So one of the things that we did at Microsoft uh, in that group was venture capital relations. So there were two parts of the job. One was a venture capital relations, and the other was technology evangelist. Uh, so the way I, and we all approached the job a little bit differently, depending on what our technical skills were. It was a small team. There were about eight or 10 of us. And uh, the way I looked at the job, that's also when I started blogging, by the way, uh, when I went to Microsoft. And these things all sort of came together for me where Uh, I was in charge of venture capital relations. So I got to know all of the VC firms in the country and the partners at those VC firms. And Microsoft wanted us to do that because they knew that the VCs got the first look at the best technologies and the best people. And Microsoft wanted those companies to build their new apps on the Microsoft platform. So the way to get to them was to go to the VCs and uh, get introduced to these companies and help them, give them free Microsoft software, encourage them to build on the Microsoft platform. And then we might want to acquire uh, some of these companies as we go along. So that was the idea. So perfect place for me. I love that job. It was just the best. So I got to travel all over the country and all over the world, really, uh, talking to venture capitalists, uh, talking to their best startups and founders, Uh, helping them, encouraging them to work with Microsoft. Uh, And at the time, I was like uh, the face of Microsoft to the venture capital world and the startup world. Uh, Robert Scoble was also at Microsoft at the time. He was in a different group. uh, Mm -hmm. And he was probably one of the most prolific bloggers of the time. And Robert helped me. He was the one that encouraged me, actually, to start blogging. And gave me a lot of tips to get going, uh, and it worked out really well. So, blogging about startups and about the startup scene. Uh, I also went to Y Combinator and later uh, TechStars. And Wait, so different-
0: Y Combinator? Like, so, because uh, you were blogging about Y Combinator and TechStars, like early, early, early. So, were you at the first Y Combinator like demo day in Cambridge?
1: Yes, I was. Where and, Reddit and was they presenting were, and... Yes, Reddit. And I think there were like six or eight companies, maybe. Uh, none of them were known. Nobody knew who Paul Graham was or, you know, it, when I went to the first one, there were maybe 15 people there, uh, no press. <laughs> and no. Uh, I was a blogger and Microsoft guy. So I was just there to kind of help out and shine the light on them any way I could. Uh, Jessica Livingston uh, was there. They weren't married at the time. Jessica was Mm -hmm. uh, there and Paul and two other guys uh, that were running Y Combinator. And uh, no one really knew, like the VCs thought it was nuts and uh, they didn't, none of the Boston VCs or any VCs really invested in those companies. And uh, some of them did, they had to go to alternative places like Silicon Valley to find their funding uh, no one knew that Y Combinator was going to be this giant uh, factory of startups. And, uh, I wrote an article for the Boston Globe on the 10-year anniversary of Y Combinator. And I, I said, uh, Y Combinator, where unicorns are born. Uh, and you know, unicorns didn't exist uh, at that time. Uh, but Y Combinator was the birthing place for many of the unicorns that uh, have happened in since 2004, I, I forget which year it was, but just amazing. It, it was a lot of fun. Yeah,
0: and what, I think they did three classes in Boston, three or four maybe? Like yeah, before they, going well,
1: Paul was from Harvard, and uh, the other guy, I forget his name, was from MIT. Uh, so this was a Boston-based thing. And they did it uh, in Boston for three sessions. Uh, and at the second year, there were a few more people. third year, a few more. Uh, I remember Fred Wilson from Union Square Ventures came from New York and some of the yeah. Boston. you have VCs a picture on your there.
0: you have a picture on your blog post with a bunch of the uh, the VCS like Fred Wilson. Um, yep, yeah. and and Dropbox was one of these was one of these Boston. Demo day companies too, right? Yeah.
1: It was. Yeah. Yeah. Dropbox started uh, in Boston and uh, in the dorm rooms and uh, Drew met his uh, co-founder. He didn't have a co-founder, but he met his co-founder in Boston, uh, came out of MIT and uh, they built a company. And I got to tell you, Dropbox, when they did their demo day demo, it was a disaster. (laughs) Uh, the internet failed and you know it didn't work and there was a lot of skepticism around if this kind of cloud storage thing would work like why would people pay for dropbox when you could get free storage from microsoft and google you know google had the google drive thing you can get free storage so why would this work and uh but you know they did the startup thing and they figured out how to make uh, make it very easy to use, inexpensive to use, and just sort of effortless, uh, where the other big guys, Microsoft and Google and others, this cloud storage thing was just kind of a lost leader to get people connected to the other things that they do. Whereas Dropbox, it was their sole business, and they figured out how to put together a business model that made it work.
0: All right. So, in addition to some of these accelerators, you know, with the blogging, it seemed like it helped build up your brands where you were involved very early on in TechCrunch. Like, so I was at the TechCrunch Boston event last week, which was fantastic, big production. Uh, obviously, TechCrunch Disrupt is their anchor. And you were mm-hmm. like a judge for the early, was it TechCrunch 40 one. or? Yeah. The first one with right. Mike Arrington. And um, yeah. I think it was so 20 you get, actually-
1: Uh, TechCrunch 20 was the first one. Okay. Okay. So that Um, was the first one. So blogging really opened that door uh, Mm because Mike was a blogger at TechCrunch and it was just him and one other person at the time. And I was a blogger. So uh, he started reading my blog. I obviously read his. uh, So he was interested in the kinds of things that I was talking about. And uh, I was working for Microsoft at the time. So he said, hey, why don't you come be a judge at our little... Uh, demo day thing and uh, I guess in his mind uh, he respected the kinds of things that I was writing about in my blog and the kind of business vision and that kind of stuff but also it brought uh, Microsoft to the table so maybe as a sponsor or, or you know just some credibility and that kind of thing because this was the early days it was the very first one uh, so he invited me and uh, we were great friends and uh I got Michael to come to Boston and do a TechCrunch uh, event in Boston. And uh, then we started doing them all over the place. So uh, great friendship. Mike is a great guy. Uh, And then Jason Calacanis joined like this third year when it was TechCrunch 40. Mm -hmm. Uh, Jason Calacanis joined. And uh, they started TechCrunch because these other what was the name of the demo was the conference. Remember demo? Oh yeah. In Arizona. Right. I think it was basically. Yeah, so demo yeah. was a conference where it was bizarre, but that was the way it worked. Startups mm-hmm. paid to present at demo mm-hmm. to yep. the audience there. Cause you've got it, it attracted an audience of VCs and investors and press. So these startups would pay money to pitch at demo to get in front of this audience. So Mike Carrington and Jason Calacanis went to demo and they said, this is crazy. Why are these big companies, you know, this demo charging uh, people $800 for a ticket to be an attendee. And then they charge the startups who pitch another thousand or $5,000. This is nuts. Uh, Why don't we start our own conference where the startups come in for free because they don't have any money and uh, we'll charge money for the tickets. So that's how TechCrunch got started. And then when Jason Calacanis came on and joined forces with Mike, uh, it really ramped up. So it went from TechCrunch 20 to TechCrunch 40 to TechCrunch Disrupt. And the 20 was, there were 20 companies presenting, and the 40 was 40 companies presenting. And when it got to Disrupt, it was hundreds of companies presenting. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's how that all got started. And uh, blogging really opened those doors for me. And... I wrote articles about every startup that presented, and just because I like to do that, but it was shining the spotlight on them. uh, So they were really happy about it, and the press picked it up. And I think even you read some of those and maybe republished them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then Techstars started. uh, And Techstars was somewhat similar to Y Combinator uh, in that they had a demo day, but no one would cover them. They didn't have any press. So I would go to all the Techstars uh, demo days, and I'd write an article about all 10 companies that presented. And then Mike Harrington said, hey, we don't have a reporter there. Do you mind if we publish your blog post about these? So I got published on TechCrunch. So that's how that kind of all kind of evolved.
0: Yeah, it's just another fun fact when I was going through your, your blog was, wait a second, he was on Jason's podcast, This Week in Startups, which still exists today. And he has the all in thing. So he's just, you know, he, like I used to read his uh, hard copy magazine publication, Silicon Alley Reporter. Like I used to get that said right. to me when I was a recruiter because I was looking at New York City startups. And I'm like, wait, Don was epi- guest for episode number seven. <laughs> for, no. I'm like, wow. <laughs>
1: Yeah. And I used to listen to that well, and I used to again, listen to another one. That wouldn't have happened if I wasn't blogging and going to startup events and doing the mm-hmm. venture capital thing. None of that would have happened. Uh, yeah. So, blogging was really something that changed my career and uh, got ideas out there and got an audience, and uh, it w- it was just a great time. And podcasts, you know, today are even better. Uh, Because you get to interview people and talk about trends. and Oh, so another thing on the blogging. What really, there were a lot of things that made it go. But one of the things I did is every morning I would get up and read Tech Meme and some of the tech industry news. And what I would do is find a topic of the day that was relevant that day and then do a retrospective kind of apply past business learnings to the story of the day. And people loved that because it was taking a hot issue of the day and going back and saying, well, here are the lessons that I learned in the past that apply to this issue today. And then I'd sort of guess about where this might go. And that was sort of my, uh, model. And people always read my blog because they wanted context around the issues of the day. And yes, this is a hot issue today, but put it in context, like compared to things that have happened in the past, where could this go in the future? And, uh, that attracted a, a pretty big audience and, uh, People at Microsoft and Google and Apple and IBM and all these big companies were reading my blog every day to get that kind of insight. So I had an audience that was all out of proportion to me as a person, uh, but people loved loved that. And I think the podcast today uh, do that too. And uh, Jason Calacanis' all-in podcast is kind of the same thing. He's got his three buddies yeah. and and they mm-hmm. talk about issues of the day and they relate lessons learned in the past to this issue and where it might go. Mm-hmm.
0: Yep. Yeah, totally. Uh, and the, well, I think the other key part is you kept up with it too. It's like a lot of people have, you know, interest. Oh, I got a blog or I got to start a podcast. And the tricky thing is actually keeping up with it and doing uh, it consistently and the audience expects you to do something and you're, you're there for them. So uh, that's right. tough to do for a lot of people. So, all right. So then you moved it on is. to Google into to Google in a similar role where you're like a developer advocate again. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. the uh, Interesting story there. Um, at that time, this was 2009 and we'd just come out of the 2008 crisis and uh, it, things were pretty bad. Microsoft laid off uh, 12,000 people, uh, something like that. It was a mass, mass kind of thing. And uh, so I got caught up in the layoff at Microsoft. And there's a backstory to that too. Uh, Robert Scoble had left Microsoft. Uh, and he sort of got pushed out. And I left Microsoft in this layoff, but I sort of got pushed out too. And the lesson there was, uh, don't be more visible and have a bigger audience than your boss or your boss's boss or your boss's boss's boss. Mm -hmm. And that's what Scoble did. And to some Mm -hmm. degree, that's what I did. I was more well-known and more in demand than the chain further up from me. And they were kind of jealous and kind of angry that, who is this guy? Why is he getting all this press? I was being quoted in the New York times and wall street journal and Boston globe and TechCrunch and all these things uh, because I was writing, I was writing a lot about the issues of the day and people like that. So they would take quotes out of my blog post or they'd call me for a quote in the thing. And, uh, it helped my career a lot, but it also uh, created a lot of, uh, jealousy and, uh, You know, that kind of thing. So anyway, I got laid off from Microsoft in 2009. And uh, Mike Arrington saw it. And he wrote a couple articles about it, about this is the biggest mistake Microsoft has ever made. And he was really pissed off about it. And there was overwhelming uh, support and outpouring uh, from those articles. Google called me um the next day uh mike errington wrote the article the same day uh that i said oh damn i got caught up in this layoff at microsoft mike errington wrote an article on TechCrunch and said this is the biggest mistake microsoft has ever made and uh, the next day google called me and i was on a plane to i was living in boston at the time or the northeast i was on a plane to uh google the next day and they hired me on the spot i was the they told me later i was the fastest hire in the history of google <laughs> and it's not because i was this brilliant guy and you know everybody needed me uh to some degree it was google uh giving the finger to microsoft and saying oh you, you fired this guy we're hiring him today and uh, it was the fastest hire ever uh it helped that uh, Vic Gondotra, who was a senior guy at Microsoft, had left Microsoft two years earlier, and he was now at Google. And he was the guy that hired me. Vic Gundotra hired me at Google. And Vic was a huge executive vice president. He was in charge of uh, Android and later Google Plus and all this stuff. So he was a big guy. Uh, he could make decisions. So he made the decision on the spot and uh, didn't go through the hiring committee and didn't go through all the processes, and, which was taboo uh, at the time. So anyway, yeah, I joined Google in 2009 as a developer advocate, which was a somewhat similar job, uh, but more technical oriented and more focused on developers. So it was amazing. I saw you uh, interviewed Rich Miner. That was awesome. You know, I worked ah. with Rich at Google. And yeah. uh, first day there, uh, he was, uh, they were starting Google ventures. It hadn't started yet. Yeah. And, uh, Rich was just hooking up with Bill Maris and Bill Maris heard that I was coming to Google from Microsoft. And he said, Hey, I want to talk to him. So I went to talk to Bill, um, and Rich minor, and they were just starting Google ventures and they wanted wanted me to join uh, Google Ventures. It was kind of an odd thing because Vic and Dotra had already you know, said, I'm hiring him to do this uh, developer advocate stuff. But then uh, the Google Ventures guys said, oh, well, we'd like to have him help because he's really plugged into the startup community and all this stuff. So the way it worked out was uh, I used my 20% time at Google to help Google Ventures get started. Uh-huh. So Rich Minor was there and Wesley Chan and David Crane and Bill Maris, and that was it. That was the Google Ventures. So I was there from day one and went to their partner meetings on Monday mornings and you know, got to, uh, I would give them some perspective because they would interview these companies and then they would say, hey Don, who else do you know in this space? And it was my job just to know every company in every space and, you know, what their pluses and minuses were. So they would ask me, hey, what do you think about this one? And who else should we talk to? So it was a fun job and it fit right in with what I was doing anyway. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I got to see Google Ventures grow and it was what a ride. Amazing. All
0: right. So let's fast forward. What are you up to now?
1: Now I'm... uh, into two things, Um, AI. So I've made investments in AI, several companies. I think I mentioned earlier Jordan Ritter who started Augment AI. And it's a brilliant implementation of AI because it takes large language models and contextualizes them or personalizes them to you. So it looks at your email and texts and documents and blog posts and everything and sort of learns how does Keith talk uh, how does Keith respond to things? And going from a generic uh, large language model like Chat GPT to a very personalized model in Augment, it will reply to emails and texts and write summaries in your voice. So it's, it's incredible. Uh, the second thing it does is it's a plug-in to all of the existing apps like email and chat and. You know, your document thing. And you don't have to jump out of the app and into ChatGPT and paste something in and then copy it over to the existing app. So it's just incredible. I've made several investments. So Augment AI, uh, keep a watch on that name. I, they're, I think they're going to do some big things. Uh, but there'll be a lot of AI kinds of applications that are industry specific and more uh, targeted than the generic AI that ChatGPT is doing right now. The other area that I'm really uh, spending most of my time in is uh, blockchain, smart contracts, uh, security, that kind of thing. Uh, It's the new wave. So there are two new waves. And I'll predict now, based on the history of the past, it's the old thing done a new way. So you're going to see all of the old business process or the existing business processes and the existing businesses implemented in a new way with AI or implemented in a new way on web three with smart contracts and uh, DeFi kind of applications. And what that implies is that all of the existing tools that we used uh, in, on the web won't work on web three and blockchain and uh, DeFi kinds of applications. So you're gonna have to reinvent all of these tools and technologies and securities and services, all this stuff around the new thing. So I think that the one thing that you can take away from my entire career, 41 years, it's watch for the platform shifts, expect that it's gonna be the old thing done a new way and look at the picks and shovels and the services that are required to make this thing, this new platform shift scale, that's where you want to invest. So I'm investing in a company uh, called Cyfrin, which does smart contract auditing and security. I uh, invested in another company called AlphaChain that takes uh, data, it's a data provider to smart contracts that trigger off from changes in prices of either stocks or tokens or cryptocurrencies, that kind of thing. And then we have a third company called Chain Excel. And as the name implies, it's uh, investing in blockchain companies and accelerating their growth and that kind of thing. So it's an exciting time. I love it. Uh, I'm sort of at the end of my career, but I'm using all the lessons that I learned earlier in this new phase.
0: Well, Don, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your career because there's so many great stories. Like I literally could have made this like a each journey, like each step could have been its own independent podcast. So I appreciate you taking the time to walk us through that journey.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's uh, been a walk down memory lane for me, so it's kind of fun. Thank you.